following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. I'd like to begin this morning by telling you a story of my church growing up. Now, I have told you a lot of stories about this church over the past years, uh, and uh, sometimes I worry that I only focus on the negative. In fact, somebody told me once, did you have a really horrible church experience growing up? And it's like, no, it's not bad at all. It's like, well, you should tell some different stories. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, I mean, it wasn't a perfect church, unlike Artisan. Um, not by a long shot. They did some crazy stuff. Some, I've moved away from some of their theology and practices. But the truth is, it was a church full of wonderful, godly people, dedicated, faithful Christians who were, who were doing the best they can, the best they could to live out their calling to follow Jesus, just like you and I are doing the best we can to live out our calling to follow Jesus. And one of the really wonderful things that they did was offer bus service. Now, the church was located in a, a fairly nice suburb of the city of Portland, Maine, the original Portland. <laughs> that other one is a fake has the TV show and everything, but it's not the first one. <laughs> I'm sure Portland, Maine wasn't the first Portland in the world either, but let's say that it was. Um, so the church was in this fairly nice suburb called South Portland, and um, they would send a bus into the, the worst parts of Portland, Maine, and offer to bring anybody who wanted to come to church to church. And uh, the people who most often took them up on this offer were um, parents who wanted to send their children somewhere for a few hours, right? Um, and so we had some kids uh, at my Sunday school growing up and in my youth group as I began to get a little bit older who would come in on the bus from Munjoy Hill, and that's the, the city part of Portland. If you're ever in Portland, don't, I guess, go there, but, um, or maybe you should. It depends, on, I suppose, on your, <laughs> your perspective. But they would come in from Munjoy Hill and, and be part of what we were doing, and one particular kid probably when I was about 13 years old, stands out to me. He was pretty rough around the edges. He was mean. He was profane. He was uh, unclean in the literal sense of the word. He was dirty. And he always wore, this will show, show you almost exactly how old I am, he always wore a, an acid-washed denim jacket. Right? And in the inside pocket was the most enormous can of hairspray you could possibly imagine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and he was one of those tough kids. You know, this was that brief era um, between switchblade combs and I don't know what else you would keep in your pocket to, to look cool, but, you know, you take the thing out and pop the thing off and put it back on and stick it in your pocket. And that was about as, as tough and cool as you could look at 12 or 13 years old in, in southern Maine, right? I don't remember his name. And let me tell you why I don't remember his name. Because I never used it. Never spoke to him uh, willingly. Um, my friends and I called him Gel Jerk because he used a lot of product in his hair, and he was a jerk, and by any definition of that word. There were probably some other words that I might have used if I wasn't such a good little Christian boy. <clears throat> and I'm 
Uh, I wish I could tell you that there's some happy ending, that he found Jesus at our church and that he's a pastor now or a missionary or he's doing something for the good of the kingdom. But to the best of my knowledge, he never did find Jesus in that place. Um, he may be busing his kids off to church from Monjoy Hill, for all I know right now. How could he have found Jesus in that place with people like me running around? Getting treated the way he was by the only Christians he'd ever had any exposure to? I wonder, um, and not just so it would make me feel better, but I wonder if any of you have a similar kind of story from your past. A similar type of person in your life whose name you don't remember. Maybe you didn't have a mean nickname. But you didn't take the time to learn it. Somebody who um, you excluded because you didn't like them. They weren't enough like you. Do you have a person in your, in your mind? Does somebody come to mind for you? Maybe you were that person. And you still ended up here. Thanks be to God. So, last week we started this new series on evangelism. Evangelism, as I said earlier, sometimes seems like a dirty word. Certainly gets a bad rap from um, people like us in churches like this. Whatever that means. We have all seen unfortunate examples of evangelism, right? I showed you the pictures last week of the guy with the megaphone. It's easy to caricature the idea of sharing the gospel by looking at the guys with the megaphone outside Frontier Field, right? It's easy to look at that and say, that's evangelism and I want no part of that. But if we are going to be people who live out our faith beyond our walls, this is the type of people we've been talking about being for almost a whole year now. If we're going to be beyond our walls, Christians, this has to be a part of of what that means. And it's in its simplest form, I would just say evangelism is nothing more than telling people about the actual experience that you have had with Jesus. We talked last week about how it's important not to try to tell them some other experience that you haven't had with Jesus because that's not remotely compelling. It's not honest and it doesn't do any good. All the early evangelists did, in fact, the ones that we talked about last week were evangelists before Jesus had even uh, been crucified and resurrected. All they did was tell their own little Jesus stories. They didn't know the full truth of who he was. They had erroneous theological concepts of who he was, as a matter of fact. The Samaritan woman at the well and the man who was born blind both went and told people about Jesus, whatever they knew about him. It wasn't the whole story. It wasn't a fully accurate story in some cases. But they told the story. And the big point last week was you do not have to be an expert Christian to share the gospel. Today I want to continue this series with uh, a message that we've entitled The Synagogue and the Marketplace. The idea here is that there are two distinct categories or locations for evangelism in the New Testament. If you look at the book of Acts as the church began to take form and the gospel began to be spread, um, there's two, you can categorize this in two ways, roughly speaking. 
The first one um, is the synagogue, right? So with only a couple of exceptions, most early evangelism took place in the synagogue because the Christianity sprung out of a, it was a movement within Judaism, as you know. So the first order of business for these new Christians was to frame the resurrection of Jesus as the culmination of God's work among the people of Israel, saying this is the thing that we've been expecting. This is the thing that has been promised for us. This is the, the, the fulfillment of our story as God's people. So that took place in the synagogue, sometimes literally physically in the synagogue, but that's, it's, it's a representation of that type of evangelism. And then afterwards, um, this other type I represent with the word the marketplace. This is not unique to me, but this, the, this is what has kind of captured my mind in this. This is the idea that the apostles are spreading the gospel now to the secular world, to people who are not in the synagogue, to what we would call probably the, the early pagan people of the day, right? They're worshiping idols and the, the Greek gods, the Roman gods, any God in between. So then in, in the next message in this series, or it might be the one after that, because I, I think we're probably going to extend this series a little bit. Um, so I'm not sure exactly when this will happen, but there's a really, really wonderful story of marketplace evangelism that I can't wait to share with you. But that's coming up. So stay tuned for that one. Today I want to think more about the synagogue evangelism, or at least our version of it, because um, I would venture a guess that very few of us have ever even been inside a synagogue, let alone walked in while they were holding a service and started to proclaim Jesus. Right? <laughs> so we have to think a little bit differently about this. So the way that I want to think differently about it is this. Essentially, I want to ask the question, what does it look like to spread the gospel from within the firmly established dominant religious institution? So for these early Christians, the firmly established dominant religious institution was the synagogue. But for modern day Christians, the firmly established dominant religious institution is what? It's the church, obviously. So I want to look at the, the problems that they faced with synagogue evangelism, and I think that they may have something to say to us. That's the idea today, the synagogue and the marketplace. So as I see it, there were two major problems for the early Christians when they were sharing the gospel within their Jewish community. The first problem, you can read about it in Acts 4 and all, all throughout the book of Acts, actually, is that the apostles faced major opposition from the leaders of that religious community. So the, the Jewish uh, legal council, the experts in the law, had major, major problems with this new Christian movement. And they saw Christianity as a threat to their authority and to their power, as well they should, because it was. And so you see the apostles taken and questioned and interrogated and whipped and beaten and put in jail. As to that first problem, I don't think we probably need to concern ourselves too, too much with it. Whatever concerns you or I might have with uh, the leaders of the Christian church in our American culture, I don't think uh, that we're really at risk of being beaten and whipped by them. <laughs> All right, they're not, they don't have the power to throw us in jail. And more importantly, to give them 
the credit that they deserve. They share our desire to, to spread the gospel, right? So they're going to be in favor of, of some kind of evangelism. As a matter of fact, many of them would be within their rights to say, yeah, it's good that you guys are finally doing the thing you're supposed to be doing as all Christians are supposed to be doing because you've been ignoring it for a long time. And um, that would probably be an accurate statement for you and for me. So we don't really have to worry about that first synagogue evangelism problem. The, the religious leaders are, are not going to come after us for doing this, right? But the second problem is one that really might be instructive for us. Because the second problem was that they had a struggle to maintain their own religious identity in the wake of this new work of God. This was an honest problem for faithful Jewish Christians. We've talked about it before. We actually talk about it quite a lot. It's one of the most captivating ideas that I find in the New Testament. The early Christians, who were Jews, had to address the question of what to do when Gentiles, people who were not Jewish, converted to Christianity. They had to decide, do we make them convert fully to Judaism first? and then convert to Christianity? Or can they go this straight line from Gentile to Christian? They might not have worded it exactly that way, but that was their concern. It was a huge struggle for the early believers, and it would, you can almost not overstate the significance of the decisions that they had to make. As they began to see Gentiles converting to Christianity without being circumcised, without observing any of the law, without any of that stuff, they had to say, God seems to be doing some work in these people in whom we never expected God to do any work. Now we have the choice to impede that, or we have the choice to facilitate that. They chose the second one, thanks be to God, (laughs) because we're all here. But in order to choose to facilitate that rather than impede it, they had to essentially lop off entire portions of their religious identity and understanding. They had to let go of a lot of what they thought it meant to be a good, godly person. Because here's these people who are clearly being blessed by the Spirit of God, and they're not in the category of good, godly people. The truth is that good news for sinners is often hard news for those who are already redeemed. Isn't that true? What is good news for sinners is often hard news for those who are already redeemed. Jesus illustrated this brilliantly with that parable about the workers in the vineyard. Remember, the the manager of the vineyard hired some people in the morning for a dollar a day, whatever it was. And then he hired some people at 10 o'clock for a dollar for the rest of the day. And then he hired some people at noon for a dollar for the rest of the day. And he hired some people like right before quitting time for a dollar for the rest of the day. And the people who got hired at 7 in the morning who were the good, like on-time people who had their act together, who were out there looking for work like they should, got the same dollar that the people who, who showed up after dinner got. And they were angry. <laughs> the good news for the the slack-jawed yokels, <laughs> was hard news for the people who had their act together. Isn't that often the truth? So, 
When's he going to do any scripture? Okay. <laughs> you, you want scripture, you're about to get it. Um, I want to read to you a story from the book of Acts. This is a slightly longer passage than I typically would read, but it's such a brilliant story. It's kind of got two little parts to it, and I want you to hear it. But uh, the good news is that I don't have much to say after this story, because the story, in large part, speaks for itself. Acts chapter 10. If you'd like to read along, you can find it on 894 in these Red Bibles. Or you can just listen. This is a story, and it might actually be more helpful for you to listen than to try to track with it and study it as you go. In Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, the centurion of the Italian cohort, as it was called. He was a devout man who feared God with all his household. Now, this is a category of person, God-fearers. You have proper Jewish people. You have pagan people who don't believe in Yahweh, the, the Jewish God, our God. And then you have people in between who are Gentiles and can't fully participate yet in the life of the church because they uh, haven't truly converted or they haven't been circumcised. They were known as God-fearers. He's one of them. But he is, make no mistake about it, he is outside the circle of trust, if you will. But he was a devout man who feared God with all his household. He gave alms generously to the people and prayed constantly to God. One afternoon at about three o'clock, he had a vision in which he clearly saw an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius. He stared at him in terror and said, what is it, Lord? He answered, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa for a certain Simon who is called Peter. He is lodging with Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the seaside. When the angel who spoke to him had left, Cornelius called two of his slaves and a devout devout soldier from the ranks of those who served him. And after telling them everything, he sent them to Joppa. About noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. Now, this is Peter, Jesus' disciple. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw the heaven opened and something like a large sheet coming down, being lowered to the ground by its four corners. In it were all kinds of four-footed creatures and reptiles and birds of the air. Then he heard a voice saying, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is profane or unclean. These were animals that were forbidden for Jewish observers to eat. The voice said to him again a second time, What God has made clean, you must not call profane. This happened three times, and the thing was suddenly taken up to heaven. Now, while Peter was greatly puzzled about what to make of the vision that he had seen, suddenly the men sent by Cornelius appeared. They were asking for Simon's house and were standing by the gate. They called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Look, three men are searching for you. Now get up, go down, and go with them without hesitation, for I have sent them. So Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? They answered, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. The next day he got up and went with them, and some of the believers from Joppa accompanied him. The following day they came to Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. 
On Peter's arrival, Cornelius met him and, falling at his feet, worshipped him. But Peter made him get up, saying, Stand up, for I am only a mortal. As he talked with him, he went in and found that many had assembled. And he said to them, You yourselves know that it is unlawful for a Jew to associate with or to visit a Gentile. Which was true. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. Now may I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius replied, Four days ago at this very hour, I was praying in my house, and suddenly a man in dazzling clothes stood before me. He said, Your prayer has been heard, and your alms have been remembered. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. Therefore I sent for you immediately, and you have been kind enough to come. So now all of us are here in the presence of God to listen to all that the Lord has commanded you to say. And then Peter begins to preach to them. And the first part of what he says is this. I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what right is, accept- is acceptable to him. And I'm going to jump down to verse 44, because he continues to preach this sermon to them. But I want to skip to what happens. In the middle of his sermon, while he is still speaking, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who heard the word. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter said, Can anyone withhold the water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? So he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they invited him to stay for several days. What a powerful story that is. There are four verses in that passage that I think give us a really clear lesson. And I don't even have to exposit them or expound upon them hardly at all. Let me repeat them for you now. In verse 15, Peter says he realizes that, or uh, Peter doesn't say that he realizes. Peter is told by the Lord, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. When he arrives with these Gentiles, he says to them, this is the second thing I want to repeat, God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. Do you realize what an incredibly disoriented statement that is for a good Jewish person to, say, to have said? God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. The scriptures, breathed by God, called people unclean <laughs> in Peter's understanding. Now, I would argue he was missing some of the point of what God was trying to do by, by making this special nation of people, but that's an entirely different sermon topic. God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. And then he says a little bit later, I truly understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. In every nation. The Hebrew word for the nations, do you know what it is? Goyim. (laughs) And then this most beautiful one. The circumcised believers, that's the Jews, who had come with Peter were astounded that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. And then Peter says, 
you know, see, Peter's this rash kind of guy, like he thinks without speaking. No, flip that. He speaks without thinking. <laughs> and sometimes it gets him in serious trouble. But this time it's like he is riding the wave of the Holy Spirit, man. And he's like, where's the water? Why would we not baptize these people right now? The Spirit has clearly fallen on them. God is doing something. Who's going to stop me from baptizing them? <laughs> I love it. So last week's big point was that you don't have to be an expert Christian to share the gospel. Please take that to heart. Please take that to heart. And also this one. You don't have to be an expert Christian to receive the gospel. Well, duh. It's kind of the definition of evangelism. Maybe it would be better to say your friends and family don't have to be expert Christians to receive the gospel. This seems so self-evident, but it's not. We have the same problem. We expect people who are not believers in Jesus to act like fully mature, Holy Ghost-sanctified Christians before we will try to convert them. That is... Backwards. We, we applaud the early Christians for saying, oh, how, how thoughtful, how much spiritual foresight they had not to require those poor Gentile men in their 20s and 30s and above to be circumcised before becoming Christians. Hooray, those of us who are guys are especially like, yes, thank you, Jesus, for, for making that so clear to them. We think it's so wonderful that they didn't make them follow 613 Mosaic laws or offer sacrifices or any of that stuff in order to know God through Jesus. And yet we expect the 21st century equivalent of people before they can truly know Jesus. It's like we will preach the gospel. We will show them the little Romans road thing. We will have some kind of diagram that explains um, in very sterilized terms what it means. Your way over here and this pit is hell and there's a cross. It's a bridge across. You just have to walk across and shed all that stuff before you get to the end because there's Jesus and you have to be holy. <laughs> We don't actually say that last sentence, but that is the way we act. That's the way we mean it. The reality of the situation in my youth group that I was telling you about earlier is that we did not think that the poor kid with poor manners and unchristlike attitudes, boy, he was a jerk, was good enough to be part of our little religious club. He was profane and unclean. And we excluded him because of it. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone profane or unclean. Who have you excluded from the gospel? Who have you done the courtesy of of pre-selecting them as not a good candidate for the Christian faith. 
I'm not going to bother sharing my story with Jesus with that person because clearly, I mean, come on. Are you as guilty of that as I am? Anyway, I'll conclude with some words of hope for you. The book of Romans, chapter 10, starting in verse 11. Paul's quoting the Old Testament again, as he sometimes does. The scripture says, No one who believes in him will be put to shame, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all and is generous to all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Isn't that so beautiful? See you all in heaven. But. (laughs) The next sentence starts with the word but. Those little three-letter words, they will get you. (laughs) Here's what he says. Hear this. May I hear it too? But how are they to call on one in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in one of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? How are they to hear without someone to proclaim him? That is a fair question, is it not? If that's enough to inspire you, You don't need to listen to the next sentence I'm going to say, but if you're a cynical jerk like me, maybe this will help you get even closer. How are they to hear without anyone to proclaim him except the idiots? How are they to hear without anyone to proclaim him except the mean people? Can we rescue evangelism from the people with the megaphones? Is it really the better alternative just to sit and say, oh, that's terrible? Oh, I'm so sorry. Here, let me shield you from that, friend who doesn't know Jesus. Let's walk around the other side of the stadium so you don't have to hear that. It is such a terrible thing. I'm so sorry you had to hear that. By the way, I'm never going to speak to you about Jesus at all, ever. I hope that's okay with you. How are they to hear without no one to proclaim him? With no one to proclaim him. And if you're a cynical person who's a little disgusted with American Christianity, how are they to hear without anybody except them to proclaim him? If that motivates you from some dark place in your heart like the dark place in mine, I guess that's better than nothing. You don't have to be an expert Christian to share the gospel. And you don't get to expect other people to be an expert Christian before you share the gospel with them. I'm late. Let's pray. Lord, we confess to you that we are um, somewhat cowardly when it comes to evangelism. We confess to you that, if not cowardly, maybe we're a little bit paralyzed when it comes to evangelism. We confess to you that that we are um, confused, afraid, unsure of ourselves, unsure of how we'll be perceived, of, of how you'll be perceived if we try to practice evangelism. Lord, will you please help us rescue this sacred moment of sharing our story of Jesus? Will you help us rescue it from the, from the perceptions we have, from the blockages that we carry with us? 
Will you help us to see friends as people who might actually benefit from hearing our Jesus story? Will you help us and forgive us for the times when we are so cynical about how they do it, about how other people act that embarrasses us? Forgive us. Call us to something that's right for us, that will work for us and may be meaningful to our friends, that will help us to to be obedient to Jesus. It's in his name that we pray and ask all these things. Amen. Well, the table of the Lord is open for you this morning. I offer the invitation to receive Christ's body and blood. regardless of whether you feel like you're an expert Christian. As you receive it, remember his sacrifice. Remember also his command to go and make disciples. And um, ask him for strength. Receive his spirit. Receive his grace. We'll continue to worship him. Uh, If you'd like to receive prayer, you can receive prayer um, in the corner here. And uh, let's continue in worship together this morning. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.